You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. been thinking all week about how there is almost endless value in studying stories from the past, meaning that there is so much for us to learn from the history of our own state or the history of our country or the history of our world, and there is so much for us, obviously, for us to learn from biblical history as well. And that's why the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, said, Whatever was written in the past, so he's talking about the Old Testament here, was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. So his whole point was that one of the primary reasons that the Scriptures exist for us, why these stories from the past exist for us, is so that we can learn from them. Now, the problem is, so many of us, and this is going to resonate deeply with some of you, so many of us hate history. Agreed? Like, how many of you, like, growing up, you just, you remember history, you remember social studies, and it was the bane of your existence? It's the only class, I missed my homecoming football game. My grade was so bad in in history. Now, in my defense, I had a horrific teacher, and my mom went before the school board every single month for six months until they fired him. And guess what? They fired him and he deserved to be fired. So I had that much of a disdain for history. Um, But but many of us, maybe yours wasn't that, that deep, but many of us just find history so dry and so boring. In fact, just, I think, two weeks ago, Ryder and I were leaving here after service uh, one Sunday afternoon, and he was bemoaning this social studies project that he had to do. And the reason was he was struggling so much to make sense of why it mattered. So the question that was going in through his mind was some version of like, how in the world could the past have anything to do that is helpful in any way with my present? And so I was trying to explain to him, not very well, because he was still pretty pissed about it when we got home. But, but I, I started to think about that quote that I, most of us have probably heard. <clears throat> we may not know where it comes from. It comes from a Spanish-American philosopher. But he said that those <clears throat> who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And the point of that quote was to say that there is endless value in our lives right now in in studying stories of the past. And so I've been sitting with that idea this week, and and I keep thinking about this question. What is it that we could learn from God's people of the past as we embark on this new adventure together? Because as Shanna just got done reminding us, there is so much that is new in our lives right now. We have a new identity as a community. And we have a new home that we are getting ready to move into in just a few weeks. And I would argue that additionally, we live in an entirely new world than we did just a couple of years ago. There has been so much that has changed in us and around us that there is just so much new. So what could we possibly learn from God's people in the past as we embark on so much of this new adventure together? And as I was thinking about that, my mind was drawn to this very important period in Israel's history that I think can provide some critical instruction for us right now today. 
And it's this story of God calling a small remnant of people to a very big responsibility, the responsibility of building his home. And so if you have a Bible or an app that you like to read on, I want to invite you to open to the Old Testament book of Haggai. Fired up? Who's, who's read Haggai in the last year? All right, a couple of us, good. For the rest of you, Haggai is a book of the Bible. If you have a hard time finding it, turn to the table of contents. There's no shame in that, and go ahead and look that up. But we're going to be in Haggai. We're not going to be in one place. We're, not, we're also not going to study the whole book today. I just want to, I want to draw attention to a couple of different things, and I'm going to call this message Return from Exile. And while you're trying to find Haggai in your Bible, uh, I want to set this up for you. <clears throat> Here's what was going on for years throughout the Old Testament. God's people had been living in what can only be described as overt, objective rebellion against him, literally disregarding everything he had said to them. And as a result of their rebellion, they experienced the same thing that everyone does when they reject what it is that God says to them for their own flourishing. They suffered. And so God in response to their suffering and their rebellion, he would send prophets to them. And the whole point of these prophets was to call them back to God. And so their message was very redundant and very simple and clear. Return or more consequences are going to come. That's the big idea of every prophetic message in the Bible. And still, the people of God at best ignored those prophets and at worst, they killed them. And as a consequence of that, in 597 BC, the Babylonian Empire conquered Israel, and Israel, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the walls were destroyed, and they spent upwards of 70 years living in exile. Now, the Old Testament book of Ezra tells of the Persian king Cyrus allowing the Jewish exiles, this small remnant of them after 70-odd years, to return for the purpose of rebuilding their temple. God put it in this pagan king's heart that it was important that their temple be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And so as a result, he gathers them together and says, whoever feels called of God can go back to Jerusalem and you can rebuild the temple. And so they make their way back to Jerusalem, they are immediately met with opposition, and the work stalls. And Haggai ministered 20 years after this first remnant of exiles had returned to Jerusalem. So I want you to just imagine the context in which he is speaking into, as we're going to look at a few of the things that he had to share with them. For 70 years, these people had been living in exile. You think the last couple of years have been hard in our culture? 70 years having your entire identity wiped out. 70 years in exile, and then a miracle happens. God keeps his word, and they are released from exile, and they return with high hopes. And just imagine the energy as they make their way back to Jerusalem. They are pumped. It has been 70 years under foreign impression. We are finally going home. We are going to build God's house. It's going to be awesome. And they are immediately met with opposition. And their response to it is to stop working. And all of their hope stalls in a moment. So you're kind of left with this question, well, now what? There's all this buildup and nothing actually happened. And that is where Haggai comes onto the scene. And he brings message after message after message to the people of God 
in an attempt to re-energize them to the work that God had called them to. And I believe that as we look at just a few places in Haggai, there is a handful of lessons that we can learn from these returning exiles, okay? I'm going to give you three. The first one is this. Number one, Haggai called them to prioritize the good of community over personal comfort. Prioritize community over personal comfort. Look with me at Haggai chapter 1, specifically verses 3 and 4. It says this. It says, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house, he's speaking of God's temple, while this house lies in ruins? So, is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses, which sounds like not very nice at all, but it was like pretty fancy for them, while this house lies in ruins? Here's what's happening. These exiles had returned, and they returned with a very specific task. One task. Rebuild the temple. And when it got hard, they quit that task, and instead, they focused all of their energy and all of their attention on their own comfort. They literally built their own individual homes. God's house, it was hard, so apparently, we're not supposed to do that anymore. We're just going to go ahead and focus on our own homes, and we're going to make sure we have a place to live. And so they built their individual homes, but not God's. And so Haggai's message is very, very simple. If you were to continue to read in chapter 1, he essentially says, hey, hey, one reason, because their lives didn't go awesome when they just ignored what God said again. And he says, hey, one reason you guys are not flourishing is you have made your personal comfort paramount, which I would argue is understandable. It is human nature. It is our most basic instinct to pursue self-preservation. And so when life is hard, we use this phrase, what do we, we, we circle the wagons around ourselves. So a little more history for you, which I'm sure you're quite excited about. You'll remember this. During the 1800s, as settlers were making their way across the West, they did so in covered wagons. And so at night, or even during the day, if they found themselves in danger, they would, and this is where we take this phrase from, they would literally take these covered wagons into a circle so that the community would be safe within it. Now, the problem is, we have become an increasingly individualistic culture. And so when we circle the wagons, we tend to circle the wagons around our own comfort. We circle the wagons around ourselves. And that doesn't work if we are also going to be committed to the good of a community like the one that God has invited all of us into. Remember, Jesus' primary message was about the kingdom. If you were to search, what does Jesus talk about more than anything else? Or what is everything else that he talks about connected to? It was all about the kingdom of God that he said was coming in a new and a fresh way through him. And so he died so that Christian communities could continue to cultivate that kingdom. And so here's what the connection that we need to make. As we pursue our own healing in relationship with Jesus, the kingdom is coming. And as we pursue justice in this world, the kingdom is coming. As we pursue anything that God says is good in our culture, in our country, in our world, the kingdom is coming. Now the problem is, when we prioritize our personal comfort above all else, it impedes kingdom expansion. 
So the priority in the Christian life is always others-oriented, which is really hard because that's like super countercultural and super counter to our own nature. But if you look at the message of Jesus over and over and over again, it's this call to be others-oriented. Now, that does not mean that we neglect care for ourselves by any means. So we're not talking about this pendulum swing to like, it doesn't matter how we are. It doesn't matter how our hearts are. It doesn't matter how our bodies are. It doesn't matter how our minds are. All that matters is everybody else. That would be a gross pendulum swing to, another, to the other side. But what it does mean is that community is often uncomfortable and that it is often not convenient for us. And what has been so awesome for me over the last week has been so many examples in our own community of people being willing to prioritize the good of the community over their own comfort. And I want to highlight these for you. And so if I call your name, I'm going to ask you to stand up. Now, here's what I know. Most of these people I'm going to ask to stand up are not going to be super excited about this. So again, it's for the good of the community, okay? <clears throat> the first one, can't. But I want you to know, Megan Bourne, who is back serving in kids right now, she has given an ungodly number of hours. I couldn't even quantify. I don't know exactly what they are to oversee all of the design of our ministry center for us to be able to move into it. You need to understand what a miracle it is that she has helped us find a way to turn 4,000 square feet. This building is 10,000 square feet, just for perspective. She's helped us find a way to turn 4,000 square feet into a space that is conducive for us to be able to worship. So what I'm telling people is we're going to be like the tiny house of churches, okay? We're going to have t-shirts made. There's going to be space for everything, but nothing extra, Okay? And all of that has come through an immense amount of effort and time and work on her part. She's got three little girls, she has a husband, and she's got another job, and she has still been willing to invest that time because it is good for our community to have a home. Furthermore, Enrique, if you'll stand up, this is Enrique Haifman, John Nisbet, who was dirty until like a half hour ago, <clears throat> and then Adam. Adam, where'd you go sit? Where are you? Stand up. You're going to stay till the end. You're staying stand until the end, okay? These three guys spent the better part of this entire weekend putting up walls, uh, or a wall, they got a second one to come, at our ministry center. Now, these two in particular both just bought homes that need an immense amount of work that they have put, Clarissa I don't think was as willing as John was, but he, he was kind and found a way to work that. I, I promised to buy them a very nice dinner. But they gave this whole weekend, put their own projects on hold to come and do this. Adam literally left like a half hour before church started to run home and shower to then come and to play drums. They could have been doing so many other things through this weekend, and instead they did that. Uh, Nathan and Daniel are in the back here. They spent, I believe, the better part of this day helping us clear out an entire storage unit over at Pastor Tyler's so that we can sell and get rid of all of that stuff. They could have done anything else on this rainy Sunday morning, but instead they gave all that time to be able to serve. Mackenzie, stand up, girl. Mackenzie has coordinated the workload on all of this. She has three little boys as well that she has to take care of, and like Megan, has a husband she also has to take care of, like all wives are cursed to do. It's in the Bible. I don't know what to tell you. And then last, but certainly not least, and I would argue probably most significant, is Pastor Tyler in the back, who none of this would happen without him. Um, and you need to understand, like most people don't understand this. Like Tyler has a, another job. 
that is not us. He is not actually an employee of this church. He runs a ministry called MyXP, serving upwards of 35 other churches around the country, and still gives us thousands of hours a year to be able to do that. I was in his office having a conversation with him this week, and he got no less than 15 text messages in four minutes. I don't even think he's actually ADD. I think his brain has been melted by how many text messages he gets in a day from all of us trying to make all of this function and work. And so what I would love if you would do is if the rest of you would stand up and please thank these people for all of their work just in this last week. We'll just continue standing through the, I'm just kidding, you can sit down. All of you can sit down. Now, in addition to all of that, I know so many of, I think we had, what, 35 some odd people, something like that. Um, all talk about different times that they can come and serve. There's work going on, I think, every single day this week. There's a huge work day next Saturday and then probably the 20th as well. So many people are giving of their time, giving of their energy, giving of their finance, because, not because it's comfortable for them, not because it's convenient for them, but because it's good for us. And we need to see what a tremendous gift that is And we need to be able to learn from these returning exiles the importance of prioritizing the good of the community over our own personal comfort. Because there is always, as soon as a community has more than one person, there are going to be aspects of it that are just not in line with our own personal comfort. It's part of the way God designed it. That rub is part of our formation. And so let me just close this section with three simple ways that we can all prioritize the good of our community as we get ready to make this move into our tiny house of a church, okay? So here, here's, here's the first thing we can do. We can all fill the front seats first, okay? I think we're going to have roughly 88 seats on the floor, which is not very many. When we fill those seats, then we will add another service, but that's the seats that we have to work with. Now, here's one thing I've learned in 42 years of life. People are allergic to the front seats, okay? Case of, I mean, it's irrefutable. No one besides me has sat in these seats the entirety of the time that we've been here. Now, here's, I only sit there because it's the shortest walk to here. If I wasn't teaching, I'd be sitting in the back too. So I don't know what it is about the front, but we don't like it. But we are going to have limited space. And so what I, this is a real simple, practical way. Like if you see a seat open in the front, just take it. Because I promise you it's not going to take long before we are running out of space inside of one service. So super simple, very practical, but fill those front seats first. Secondly is to come on time. We're going to be moving back to 10 a.m. on Sundays. We are going to build in a buffer during that time. So we're going to have coffee and donuts upstairs, um, and you'll be able to hang out, get your kids checked in, have time to get settled. Um, But at 10.20, as you've heard me say, we're going to shut down the check-in for Formation Kids so that they can actually start their programming. And it, it would be terribly disruptive in this new space for people to come like halfway through the service. And here's why. If you've never been to our ministry center, you're going to like walk right into the middle of it, okay? So it's not like here where you come in a door. It would be like if this was the door and you just come walking into it. So it's going to be just disruptive to the service as a whole. And so one very practical way that, and I'm not saying this because it's like morally superior to be on time. It really is just a practical trying to eliminate distraction from our service. And so one, so we can load those seats up front. 
and then we can do our best to be on time. And then lastly, always welcome guests. One thing that I've noticed in the post-COVID world that we are living in is we have become, I don't want to say, I don't, I don't think it's any intent, but I, I, I have this sense we have become less welcoming of people that we don't know because we've kind of circled the wagons around our own lives. And so when we walk into any environment, I'm not just saying church, I'm saying anywhere, we are immediately looking for like, who do I already know so that I can get into a conversation with them? Because I feel like social anxiety has risen in so many of us in the last couple of years. And so it's so important that if you see someone in, at any event that we ever do that you don't recognize, just take the opportunity to go over and say hello. You don't have to get matching sweaters. You don't have to become best friends with them. You can just be kind to them and let, you know that, let them know that you're glad that they're here. And what that does is it has the impact of un, like unconsciously most of the time helping someone latch onto this sense that it, it's God who's glad I'm here. And when the people of God send a message that it doesn't matter that you're here, then unconsciously we receive the message, God doesn't care that I'm here. And that is not true. So just to recap, we want to fill front seats, do our best to come on time, and we want to always welcome guests. A few lessons that we can learn from these returning exiles. The first is, let's prioritize community over personal comfort. All right, here's the second. Number two, every move of God starts with a stir. Every move of God starts with a stir. Look at Haggai chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. It says, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. And God said this through him, I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. Now notice this in 14, the Lord roused, if you circle stuff, circle that word in your Bible, the Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Isn't anyone else glad that we can just say, like, it's November 5th instead of all of that? But here's what I want you to notice. I want you to really, really hone in on that word, roused. Now, the Hebrew word means to awaken. It means to move, to agitate, or to disturb, or to stir to action. Now, here's what we need to see here. Remember, building had stalled for 20 years. Nothing's happening in Jerusalem anymore as it pertains to the temple. And this prophet comes into this community where there's no more movement of God. He brings this very simple message from God, I am with you, keep building. And an amazing miracle happened. Something stirred in the hearts of the people. Their hearts were roused to action. Every move of God in human history has started with a stirring in a heart to action. And I can tell you, I remember the moment that God first called me to plant the first church that I planted. Tammy and I were living in Lake in the Hills, Illinois. I was a worship pastor at, a t- at the time. Uh, I had been working at Starbucks for like 
five years or something at that point. I'd, I'd always wanted to be a worship pastor. I was convinced no one was ever going to pay me to do that job. And then it finally happened. And I was so, so pumped. And Tammy was in uh, art school at the time down in the city. And so almost six days a week, I was working like 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And I was just pumped about it. I had no complaints. I loved the guy that I was working with at the time. And so I was just, I was living my best life, like a Joel Olstein book. It was, I was experiencing it. It was amazing. Uh, I, I don't really believe in most of what he says, just to put that out there and be clear. It was a joke. <clears throat> that being said, so I, I was out on this walk one day. I remember exactly where I was on the sidewalk. Or, I'm not on the sidewalk. I was sitting in a meeting, and I, it was a capital campaign meeting for our church. If you've never been in one of those, God bless you. They're terrible. Uh, so we're having this whole conversation. How can we raise money to, to build a building? Because like we are, we were in a portable church. I've been in portable churches for 22 years. So I'm really pumped about this tiny house. It's going to be awesome. Um, and so sitting in this meeting, <clears throat> and all of a sudden, I heard God speak to me m- more clearly than I had at any point up to then. And it was one of the most profound experiences of hearing God's voice that I've had since. And God said three things to me. He said, your journey's never going to be easy. That has proven true. I haven't called you to follow men because I was kind of hiding out behind this pastor that I was working with at the time. And he said, I've called you to plant the church. I'll never forget that moment. I left that meeting, I got in my car, and I burst into tears. And I cry way more now than I did then. So this was like, what is happening? I always joke, I was crying like a girl that got dumped at the prom. It was real bad. So I called my mom, because Tammy and I had been married for like 13 seconds, and I just did not want to dump this on her. And I shared this experience with her, and she goes, yeah, I could see that. And then I met with like five other people. One of them was Tyler. I said, here's what God said. Every single person said the right thing. Oh, yeah, or the same thing. I could totally see that. I was like, cool. This was not on my radar. But something had happened in that moment, and God had stirred my heart to a new action. And so I want to ask you a very simple question. And I want you to be super honest with yourself about it. Is your heart stirred by God to build Formation Church? When you think about our vision to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. Does that resonate with you? Does your heart say, I have to help this happen? Because if it does, I want to invite you to jump all the way in. Attend, serve, give, join a formation group, sit with God in your daily life. Jump all the way in. And, and I want you to hear this I genuinely mean this. If that, if, if like this does not stir your heart, man, find a community where the vision and mission does stir your heart. Because I genuinely don't believe formation is for everybody. But community is. And so we all need a place that stirs us to prioritize it. So does, is God stirring your heart to be a part of building what it is that he has called us to be. Every move of God starts with a stir. And then finally, 
Another lesson that we learn from the returning exiles is this. Always celebrate small beginnings. Always celebrate small beginnings. Drop down to chapter 2 and read with me beginning in verse 1. It says on another long date, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. Now here's why God had to speak into their community in this way. There were, by and large, two groups that made up this first wave of exiles that returned. There were the elderly people who had seen, like, the OG temple before exile. And then there were all of these young people who had been born in exile who had never seen the original temple. The temple. Not Zerubbabel, the temple. <sighs> the temple. So, <laughs> the book of Zechariah... Shut up, Didi. The... <laughs> The book of Zechariah, Zechariah was another prophet, but Zechariah records this very interesting detail that happened prior to Haggai, and he says that when the foundation was finished, so when they first came back, that foundation is laid, and these young people who had never seen a temple before, they start to shout for joy because they are so pumped. They're like, look at what God has done, but the elderly people had a very different response. See, they'd seen the old temple. They knew what it had been. And Zechariah tells us that their shouts were not shouts of joy. They were shouts and cries of grief because they were crushed under the weight of disappointment. And so it's into that that Zechariah has to tell them how to respond in the midst of this. So just, just to like help, them, help us think about what they would have been experiencing, like, Just think about the difference between a carnival and Disney World, okay? I remember the very first time I went to a carnival. I think I was like six years old. We had this picture. I remember this picture from when I was a kid of me on, you've seen those like like merry-go-round things that go around. There was like these little motorcycles on them. Maybe you saw those at some point. I distinctly remember being on this thing thinking, this is the greatest day of my life. This is it. Jesus could come back, take me right now. I've peaked. It's never going to get better than this. And then a couple years later, my parents took me to Disneyland. And I remember walking to the Magic Kingdom going, this is so much better than that carnival was. And I was thinking, like, it's clean. It's not just in an abandoned mall parking lot. All the employees had pants on. It's real fancy, real fancy joint. (laughs) It was so much bigger. There was, just, it, there was so much about it that was just so, so different. But imagine going the other way. Imagine your first experience is like Disney World, and then they're like, for the rest of time, no more of that, just the, just the carnival. You're like, that's not as good, Mom. Okay, it's not as good. In a much bigger, more profound, deeply emotional way, that's the experience that they're having. 
They remembered what was. They knew what could be. And they saw this little thing in front of them, and they were just terribly disappointed. Here's why I think that's so timely for us. We are in a season again of small beginnings. And in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, God told Israel not to despise the day of small things. Instead, they were to rejoice because what's small won't always be small. I've been in church planning a long time now, and here's what I've learned. Everyone fixates on growth at the expense of enjoying the journey. See, at some point, we look back on these small days as sweet days. But oftentimes, in the midst of the small days, you're fixated on, like, how do we get out of these small days? And that's a form of despising these small beginnings. And so the truth is, is like as we look around this room, like my guess is that many of us have looked around this room for the last few weeks and had a, some, some version of the thought like, this is not that impressive. I'm not going to lie, I've looked around this room the last couple of weeks and thought, this is not that impressive. <laughs> but you know what? That is not true. We have successfully started a church in the least church city in the United States of America. And we have survived a pandemic together. And we have relaunched with a new identity, and we are about to get a new home. We are small, but we are scrappy. And if we persist, we have only seen the beginning of everything that God has for us. And so we have no right to do anything other than to celebrate these small beginnings. And so here's why I believe these lessons are so critical for us. I deeply believe, and I think that you do too, our valley needs our church. We have a unique ministry to fulfill in this city. I am here to tell you, healthy churches don't just happen. They have to be built. They start with a stir. They are built by people who are willing to prioritize the good of the community over their own personal comfort. And they are worthy of being celebrated at every stage, even these small beginnings. And so the question in front of us is, will we join Jesus' mission right here and right now? We have laid a great foundation, and it is time to build. And so let's take a moment before we seek to discern exactly how God is inviting us to respond today, before we reflect on what he's inviting us to, and let's just ask him for help because we need it. The most significant promise that exists in Scripture that comes up over and over and over and over again in Haggai is God saying, I am with you. And that's really good news because we can't do it without him. So I want to invite you to bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us. Jesus, we thank you that you willingly 
sacrificed your own comfort to the extreme of sacrificing your own life for the good of your community, for us. You are the reason that we can be with you. You are the reason that this promise that God is with us is even true. And so we thank you for that. And we beg and we plead with you for your help. Lord, would you stir in our hearts? Lord, I pray that even right now, that you would stir in hearts. If, if this is the community that you have called us to, then light a fire inside of us for what you have called us to. And if this is not the place, then Lord, I pray that you would guide all of us to a place where we would have community because that's what you've called us to. You are not trying to build any one church. You are trying to build your church. And so, Lord, if you would call us to be here, stir that inside of our hearts. And if you want us to be elsewhere, stir that in our hearts. But, Lord, if this is going to be our home, if this is going to be our community, then I pray that you would empower us to prioritize to prioritize the good of this community over our own comfort. That we would be willing to sacrifice and invest deeply for one another here. And Lord, I pray that you would give all of us a renewed sense of celebration over who you are, over who we are, and all you've done here. Lord, I pray as we get ready to gather for the first time in our own home in just a few weeks, Lord, it will be small, but it is a big deal. And Lord, I pray that we would sing louder than we have ever sung. And I pray that we would celebrate harder than we have ever celebrated as a community. Because it is a beautiful display of your presence with us and your provision for us. You are with us. So make us strong. Give us courage. And help us to bring your kingdom in this city. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.